And we're back with Wednesdays with Wesley. My name is Bob Kaler, pastor at Tri-Lakes United Methodist Church in Monument, Colorado. Some people have asked where that is. It's just a little bit north of Colorado Springs, kind of in the shadow of the United States Air Force Academy. And we had the Academy graduation here a few weeks ago. And we always get an air show when that happens because the Air Force Thunderbirds fly right over our house. So we just stand out in the front yard and and cheer them on. It's a great place to live, great place to be, and it's great to be with you as we continue our move through the sermons of John Wesley. And we're looking particularly at the sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And today, this week, we're looking at discourse number five, particularly at Matthew chapter five, verses 17 to 20. So let me read that for you, because this is an important text in the Sermon on the Mount. It gives us the relationship between what Jesus is going to say and the Old Testament law that came before it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Old Testament law and the Sermon on the Mount. As I was preparing for this, it reminded me that one of the ancient heresies of the church is Marcionism. The idea that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were different, that the Creator God of the Old Testament was legalistic and capricious, while the New Testament God is loving and caring and sent Jesus to bring people out of the material world into a new home. This is a very popular heresy. It's one that actually, as a pastor, I get asked about quite a bit because people read the Old Testament and they say, wow, there's so much in here, so many laws. Getting people to read through Leviticus can be a chore if you've ever done a Bible through the year kind of thing. And people see God as kind of arbitrary and angry, whereas things seem to be much lighter in the New Testament, although I would argue that you're not reading the New Testament very closely if you think that's the case. Now, this idea of separating the Old Testament from the New Testament was condemned in the second century. Marcionism was condemned early on in the church, but it still has that hold on people today. It's a pop theology that's often governed by memes and social media. I saw one recently that talked about Jesus, and, and it had a, a white version of Jesus and then a Mediterranean version of Jesus, and then it listed a bunch of stuff under each one. And the point is well taken that you cannot uh, simply uh, make Jesus into a 21st century person or even into a, a white European. He was obviously a Palestinian Jew. But there's an idea there that creates a false dichotomy. For example, one side says that 
Jesus is a king. That's supposed to be a negative. Well, on the other side, he is an itinerant who identifies with the homeless and the broken. Well, actually, Jesus does both of those things. So it's not a false dichotomy. And neither is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see Jesus speaking in ways that are fulfilling and faithful to the entire biblical witness. We see some of this even in our, in our theology running around in the church today. We have a popular Methodist preacher that says that scriptures can be placed in three buckets. First bucket being scriptures that express God's heart, character, his timeless will for human beings. Secondly, another bucket that scriptures that express God's will in a particular time are no longer binding. And thirdly, that third bucket is scriptures that never fully express the heart, character, or will of God. The idea is that you can pick or choose these different things. And and my guess is that a lot of the Old Testament for this particular pastor would go in that third bucket, not to be seen again. Anything that we determine needs to go in the bucket should go in that bucket. That's not unlike the, what the Jesus Seminar did back in the 1990s when they got together and voted on what the authentic uh, sayings of Jesus were, the authentic actions of Jesus. They cut out most of the miracles, much of what he talked about in terms of apocalypticism or, or sin or anything like that. And what you wound up with was only 18% of the gospel left. That's essentially what is happening here. It's a truncated, edited version of the scriptures, much like Thomas Jefferson took scissors to the Bible and chopped a lot of stuff out. Who determines what goes in what bucket? Well, you do as the reader. And if we take that to heart, we can reject much of the Old Testament. Andy Stanley, Andy Stanley another popular preacher, said that the New Testament should be unhitched from the Old Testament. Now, he... To his credit, he he doesn't mean it completely. He's talking about it uh, in, a, in a different sort of context. But it's these kind of statements that don't take into account the full nature of the Bible and the reason that it's designed to be a unified whole. There's a reason that Jesus and the early church quote from the Old Testament. It's still still seen as being in force, and they wrestle with it. It was their Bible. Indeed, I would argue you can't really understand much of what Jesus is talking about or doing unless you understand the Old Testament. After all, he is the author of that book, too. And the truth is, you can't separate him from it, nor can you simply say that Jesus was all about grace while the Old Testament is all about law. That's a false dichotomy. To say such a thing is to subvert the actual person and work of Jesus, to become, in effect, a Marcionite. Indeed, Jesus' statement here in the Sermon on the Mount should disavow us of any notion that you can separate Jesus from the God of the Old Testament, nor can you separate his teaching from the Old Testament law. The Sermon on the Mount itself, in fact, is an expansion of that moral law, not its negation. And so John Wesley wants to make clear here in Discourse 5 that Jesus' relation to the law is important. And in doing so, he reminds us 
that Jesus isn't preaching here a new religion, but rather expanding on and fulfilling the very purpose of the Creator God. And so Wesley begins this sermon, this discourse, with a a sort of address against this Marcionite tendency in some parts of Christianity. He says that some even said at the time of Jesus that he was, quote, a teacher of novelties, an introducer of a new religion. A lot of people believe that that Jesus was beginning a new religion, that Paul was beginning a new religion, that Jesus used different expressions than Jews of his time were used to, that he talked about worshiping God in spirit and truth, which was difficult for people who had become become used to practicing the form of godliness to hear. Indeed, some might have hoped that Jesus was abolishing that old religion based in the law, based in the Old Testament, and bringing in an easier way to heaven that didn't require so much of people, that he was simply abandoning all of that stuff in order to get to a very simple way of being. But Jesus is going to refute that notion in these verses from chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, and indeed, throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, if you compare Jesus' approach to the law to the Old Testament, he actually intensifies it in many ways, far and away from actually negating it. He makes it even more strenuous because he's talking about the origin of obedience or disobedience that takes place in the heart. And so Wesley designed this discourse to take this statement of Jesus about fulfilling the law line by line so as to clarify what Jesus means. That's how important this is to the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. So let's take this line by line along with Wesley. First, and I'm going to use the King James Version here because Wesley uses that, "...think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets." I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, Wesley says up front that Jesus is not talking here about the ritual or ceremonial law delivered by Moses. Laws relating to sacrifices, food laws, service in the temple, and so forth. This is an argument we hear all the time. That, well, if we're going to follow, for example, the Old Testament laws on sexuality, then we should not be eating any pork, Uh, we should not wear clothes of different fibers, and so forth and so on. That's conflating these two kinds of law together, because we would expect to see those kinds of laws that were in the New Testament uh, negating those in the Old Testament. And in some sense, they do. But what is negated? Think about Acts chapter 10, for example, when Peter has the vision of the different unclean animals that are lowered, and he hears the voice say, Arise, Peter, kill, and eat. That was about the food laws. But there were moral laws that were in effect from Old Testament through the New Testament. They're consistently held up all the way through. Think about the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, where in the end the apostles agreed with the Holy Spirit that Gentile believers should not have a burden laid on them. So some were saying that in order to become a Christian, they had to become ceremonially Jewish first. They had to be circumcised, which was one of those ritual laws. 
And Paul, who himself is a Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, once a, a fierce defender of all the law, both the moral law and the ceremonial law, said, no, we cannot lay that kind of burden on people. And so the Jerusalem Council got together and they said, no, we will not require circumcision, we will not require them to keep kosher. But they did retain certain other laws. They retained laws about eating meat that had been strangled from eating blood and, in particular, from sexual immorality. So that law continues all the way through. The law that Jesus is talking about here, says Wesley, is the moral law. When he's talking about not coming to destroy the law or the prophets, he's talking about the moral law, particularly the moral law contained in the Ten Commandments and enforced by the prophets. Wesley says, This is a law that can never be broken. It stands on a different foundation than the ritual law, which was only designed to restrain a stiff-necked people for a time, designed to give them an identity. But the moral law, on the other hand, was established from the beginning of the world, written not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts when people were made in the image of God. So Wesley actually goes all the way back to Genesis, in effect, by implication, and says that from the very beginning, this law of God, this moral way, was stamped in us because we were created in the image of God, who is pure, who is pure in his conduct, his actions, his, his words. So even though that divine writing on human hearts may have been defaced by sin, remember it only takes till Genesis 3 for that to happen, it cannot be wholly blotted out while we have any consciousness of good and evil. In other words, that, that particular moral law is still stamped on us even though it has been marred by evil and sin. And so every part of the moral law remains in force upon all people for all ages. It's not dependent on time or place or circumstances, but rather the moral law depends on the nature of God and the nature of humanity and their unchangeable relationship to each other. This is law that's in force across the board. To put it another way, you can't regionalize or historicize sin. Once a sin, always a sin. In this place, a sin. Everywhere, a sin. That's how the biblical moral law works. And Jesus goes on to say, I've not come to destroy this law, but to fulfill it. Now, some have said, Wesley says, that Jesus means he has come to fulfill the law by his perfect obedience to it. And yes, he does that. But the meaning is much broader than that. Wesley says that the fulfillment of the law means that Jesus had come to put the moral law in full and clear view, eliminating, eliminating the dark confusion and obscurity layered on the moral law by people. Remember that the Old Testament has lots of different layers put on top of it, and Jesus comes to pull back those layers and get at the original intention and extent of the law. Again, he is not bringing about a new religion, but the old one that witnesses to both the law and the prophets. And so what Jesus does is to explain the law in a way that it had never been explained before. This is the very author of the law giving humanity his commentary on that law while also declaring 
that it can never be changed but remains in force. Secondly, Jesus says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. It's a little different than the way that the NRSV puts it. Not one stroke of a letter will pass away. What Wesley uses here is the old phrase, jot, not one iota, not one tittle, not one corner or point. In other words, not one commandment contained in the moral law, no matter how seemingly insignificant or inconsiderable it may seem, shall ever be erased. This is an authoritative statement by Jesus, who is also the incarnate author of the moral law. Remember that when Jesus is giving the law, he's not making a commentary on something that he has no other connection with. If he is part of the Trinity, as we believe, then he is indeed the author of those original commandments as well as the commandments from the Sermon on the Mount. And thus they're going to stand without prevarication or loophole. Indeed, Jesus is going to close some of the loopholes that people found for the Ten Commandments here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some have tried to leave an out to the law, and Wesley addresses that too. Some say that the law has been fulfilled by Christ, therefore it's no longer valid. You hear this a lot from people who want to dismiss the moral imperatives of the law in favor of a more of a more modernized kind of morality. But Wesley points out here that all refers not to the law, but rather to all things in the universe, and that fulfilled here isn't in reference to the law, but to all things in heaven and on earth. In other words, the moral law is still in force, until the entire purpose of God has been fulfilled in the new creation. There is no loophole. We can't merely say, the law has been fulfilled by Christ, therefore we don't need to obey it anymore. We are under grace now, no longer under law. Doesn't matter what we do, we are covered by God's grace. Wesley says, no, that law is still in force. Otherwise, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And that means, too, that there is no conflict then between the law and the gospel. The law does not need to pass away in order for the gospel to be established. Here again, we set up a false dichotomy between those two things. One does not supersede the other. Grace, the gospel, does not supersede the law. Indeed, they agree together. Wesley says this, If they are considered as commandments, they are part of the law if as promises of the gospel. And so the command to love God, for example, is just that, a commandment and thus part of the law, but when it is regarded as a promise, it is part of the gospel. The gospel is the commands of the law proposed by way of promises. The Beatitudes are another example. They are enjoined in the law of God, but also expressed as promises in light of the gospel. To put it a different way, The law continually points us to the gospel, while the gospel continually leads us to the exact fulfilling of the law. Let me say that again. The law continually points us to the gospel, while the gospel continually leads us to the exact fulfilling of the law. That is the best description 
of the relationship between law, the moral law, and gospel that I've ever seen. And it's right here in Wesley's Fifth Discourse. We hear the command to love God and neighbor, which points to the gospel, but we cannot do this on our own. It's the gospel that enables us and changes us, fills us with love, thus giving us the capacity to fulfill that commandment. It would be different if God said, you must love me, you must love your neighbor, and then gave us no capacity to do so. God is the one who fills us with this love. He gives us the capacity to obey that which he commands. And so Wesley says every command in Scripture in this sense is only a covered promise. Whatever God commands of us, he will work in us. It shall be unto us according to his word. I can't help but think that this is another way of describing entire sanctification, which we have talked about previously, that we are enabled to obey the law, the moral law, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're able to have power over sin because we have been given this grace activated in us and in the power of the Spirit. Now some, Wesley goes on to say, have also tried to supersede the commands of God by claiming that the Holy Spirit directed them otherwise. He was very prescient in this, I think. This is very common, especially in some progressive forms of Christianity, which say the Spirit is still speaking, uh, the Spirit has told us something new and different, and thus can change or subvert the commands of God. And a lot of times they'll point back to that Acts chapter 10 passage and say, well, see, look what happened. God uh, gave Peter permission to eat these unclean animals. That would have been unthinkable in the Old Testament. And so therefore, uh, the Holy Spirit was doing something radically new. Well, not exactly. Remember what God promises Abraham in Genesis 12, that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Over and over again, through the Torah, through the prophets, we see the promise of God being brought to the Gentiles. That promise is fulfilled there in Acts chapter 10, and then codified in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. So if we're going to say that the Spirit is still speaking, what we should say rightly is that the Spirit is still speaking what He has said originally, what the Trinity has said from the very beginning, what the Word says. And as if there were any doubt of that, the Sermon on the Mount puts an end to that kind of pretension. There is no other ruler command that comes after this. It is to endure until the consummation of all things, says Wesley. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of God shall not pass away. And so if the Spirit is speaking, the Spirit may be moving us into new places, but always anchored to the Word originally given. Charles Wesley talks about this in one of his hymns, from the short hymns of 1762, Hymn 973. I love how Charles Wesley puts it. Here are the verses. Doctrine experiences to try, we to the sacred standard fly. Assured the Spirit of our Lord can never contradict His Word. Whate'er the Spirit speaks in me must with the written Word agree. If not, I cast it all aside as Satan's voice or nature's pride. The Spirit speaks the Word, 
the timeless, eternal word. And not only speaks it in us, but enables us to obey it. Thirdly, whosoever shall break one of these commandments and shall teach others so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so here Wesley condemns those who think that they can express the law more rigorously than Christ. Who is he that shall instruct the Son of God how to preach, says Wesley, who will teach him a better way of delivering the message which he hath received from the Father? Whosoever shall break of these least commandments, the commandments for Jesus are the equivalent of the law and the prophets. The prophets are not adding anything to the law, but declaring, explaining, and enforcing it as they were moved by the Spirit. Those that break the commandments willfully or presumptuously, even one of these commandments invites the wrath of God as surely as if he had broken every single one. That's important here. Wesley's saying we don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to have buckets here. If we break one of the least commandments, we have broken the whole thing and we need redemption. So using Jesus' examples from the Sermon on the Mount, there was no allowance made for what Wesley calls one darling lust, not one little thing that we can set aside. Well, this will be okay if I just lust after this or, or one idol. Well, I'll, t- I'll obey God in all these other things except for this one place. There is no excuse for giving way to one bosom sin. Wesley says what God demands is an entire obedience. If we only keep some of the commandments, we lose all the labor we have in keeping the others, and we will lose our souls too. So there is no such thing as a little sin. Just like you can't be a little pregnant, there's no such thing as a little sin. We might think that God gives us a pass on those minor sins, but every sin is an affront to God. And so that is a challenging word for us who like to prevaricate, who like to find uh, loopholes. Once means all. One small sin is all sin. So it's important to keep that in mind when we are rationalizing and prevaricating as we often do. So whoever breaks the least of these commandments shall be called the least in the kingdom. And those who teach others to do so have an even harder way forward. Teaching by precept and example, often the example speaks louder We've talked about this before in terms of doing good. Now Wesley turns it on its side and says, if we are teaching others through our words and actions to disobey these commandments, we are subverting the will of God and the work of the kingdom. A drunkard is a teacher of drunkenness, for example. A habitual breaker of the law is seldom content to stop there. Teaching others by word as well as example, especially when he hardens his neck and hates to be corrected. That one who says, I'm holding on to this particular sin. I'm going to explain it away. I'm going to teach you that you don't have to worry about that particular sin either. Well, that's a road to destruction for Wesley. 
such a sinner becomes an advocate for sin, excuses the sin which he will not leave, and thus directly teaches every sin which he commits. What are the sins we rationalize? Those are the ones that we have to look out the most for, and those are the ones we have to repent of most clearly. What sins are we teaching others to commit through our words and actions? And what parts of our lives do we refuse to have this kind of correction? What sins do we rationalize? Because, friends, the truth is we are always teaching in our words and in our actions. So whoever teaches others to sin in this way, to obey the least of these commandments, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they shall have no part therein. They are strangers to the kingdom of heaven. They have no share in the inheritance promised to those who are uh, poor in spirit, who are meek, like in the Beatitudes. They have no share in that righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost that is characteristic of the kingdom. They have no part in the glory which shall be revealed. Now, who do these words land for? For who precisely does the Lord intend these words? Wesley says there are several audiences here. This, these words are directed at those who live in some willful, habitual sin. That if an ordinary sinner teaches by his example, how much more so a sinful minister? Oh, here he's talking to us pastor types. That even if he does not attempt to defend or excuse or extenuate his sin, we are teaching sin. And if we do so, particularly those of us who are leaders, Wesley says we are murderers and murderers of our congregations. That we would be the choicest instrument of the prince of darkness. That we cannot sink to the bottomless pit without dragging a multitude with us. We see this so often in examples of high-profile pastors caught in sin and many low-profile pastors too. We are all clergy vulnerable to this kind of work, and we are uh, infused with greater responsibility because the stakes are much higher for us when we are teaching others how to sin by our words and actions. And so we pastors especially need to get serious about dealing with sin in our lives, to be accountable, to repent, to get right, to talk with someone about the temptations that we face, to confess them when we give in. That's one of the reasons why I'm in a weekly band meeting. I want to be able to have a place where I can put that stuff on the table. And knowing that I have to put it on the table keeps me from doing it. We need that accountability because we do not want to be least in the kingdom and we don't want to drag our people down with us. Wesley said, next to those are good-natured people who live seemingly harmless lives. They do not trouble themselves with outward sin or with inward holiness. They are happy pagans, even if they may go to church. They might be styled as those who align with moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's all good, dog. All you got to do is be a good person. Ministers in this category, in their form of life and preaching, uniformly tend to soothe those in their pleasing dream who imagine themselves Christians and are not, 
to persuade all who attend upon his ministry to sleep on and take their rest. Wow, that's a that's a huge indictment, isn't it? That if we are simply helping people to feel good about themselves, imagine that their Christianity demands nothing from them to say that nothing really needs to change, you're just great the way you are, then we invite people into spiritual sleepiness, and we know where that takes us, because we've read some of these previous sermons. Refer back to sermons like Awake Thou That Sleepest, or The Spirit of Bondage and Adoption. A sense of spiritual sleepiness that may have a form of religion, but no obedience thereof. It's preaching that tickles the ears, that tells everyone that they're fine. That doesn't mean that you should go out and be a fire and brimstone preacher, but it does mean to be honest, to confront sin, to challenge people, because Jesus challenges us with these commandments. And lastly, and above all, Wesley says, the type of people who will be the least in the kingdom are those who openly and explicitly judge and speak evil of the law and who teach others to break it, that they are enemies of the gospel, They teach that the Lord abolished the law and that there is one duty only, that is, believing that all commands are unfit for our times. Here again, Wesley condemns those who would put different scriptures, different commandments in particular buckets. These really believe that they are honoring God by rejecting the law because they're making it easier for people, that they magnify the office of Christ while at the same time they are destroying his doctrine. They betray the Son of Man with a kiss. And so anyone who preaches faith that sets aside obedience is not going to enter the kingdom of God. Of course, Wesley believes in salvation by faith, but we esteem no faith but that which worketh by love. And here's the key statement. We are not saved by faith unless we are delivered from the power as well as the guilt of sin. We are not saved by faith unless we are delivered from the power as well as the guilt of sin. We do not step from sin to heaven without any holiness coming between. Wow, that is a powerful statement of Wesley. You cannot step from sin to heaven without any holiness coming between. That's a real indictment against a lot of Christianity that just wants to get people saved for heaven, and it doesn't really matter what happens between now and then. Wesley says we cannot do that without any holiness being part of it. We need to have power over sin. Remember that for Wesley, the new birth and faith are the beginning of power over sin. And that power over sin is grounded in obedience to the commandments of Jesus which are the commandments of the law. So believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall have peace and power together, power to trample sin under your feet, power to love God and serve him with strength, power to do good, to teach others with your words and your life. Those who do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Any other way to the kingdom is the way to destruction. And Wesley closes with an example of the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes were not just secretaries or even lawyers. They were 
conversant in the laws of God. They understood the law. Divinity was their profession. The Pharisees were zealous of the minutest points of the law and were seen as holy men. And yet their righteousness was based in the belief that they weren't like other people. They fasted and tithed. They trusted that they were righteous and they despised others. And yet Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you cannot enter the kingdom. Christian righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees by fulfilling the spirit as well as the letter of the law. It's full obedience, not just in what we don't do, but in the attitudes of our heart that drive us to be obedient to God. So the righteousness of the Pharisee looks a lot like the general rules. Wesley says here again that the basics are do no harm, do good, attend upon the ordinances of God. Those are our Methodist general rules. But they are only a starting place. They are all external. But as Jesus points out in the Beatitudes, real righteousness is internal. It's possible to obey the general rules and yet not be changed inwardly. It's that real internal righteousness where things begin, where we really become the people God created us to be. Now, Wesley says, your righteousness should not fall short of the scribes and Pharisees. We should cease from evil. We should pay attention to the ordinances of God. We should do good. But your righteousness should exceed those things to hold fast to the commandments, to keep the whole law, to do what Jesus commands with all your might, to be the kind of person outlined in the Beatitudes. Let thy religion, Wesley says, then be a religion of the heart. Be poor in spirit, be meek, hunger and thirst for God, longing to awaken up after his likeness, be a lover of God and of all humankind, do and suffer all things, do that, Wesley says, and your righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, and you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to bring it to reality by living it. And he calls us to do the same. We cannot ignore it. We cannot prevaricate it. We cannot truncate it. We cannot dump parts of it into buckets. This is the way to the kingdom. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what I command. May it be so with us. I hope that you will read this particular sermon carefully. I look forward to preaching on it myself in the coming week. It's a powerful reminder that we serve a God who speaks consistently across time to different people in different ways, but with a law that's designed to draw us back to the people God created us to be. And what God commands, God gives us the strength, the spirit, and the ability to obey if we will only tap into that ability by faith in the one who can bring it to reality. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to talking with you again next time as we dive into discourse number six of the Sermon on the Mount. As always, you can send me your questions and comments at pastorbk at tlumc.org. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Rev B. Kaler. 
We'll have the sermon here in the show notes if you want to read the whole thing. Make sure you leave us a review on your favorite favorite podcast platform. Tell others about this series on Wesley Sermons. I was talking with a friend this week. He was doing a, an interview f- with me for uh, a class that he's taking. And and it, it struck me that, you know, he was talking about in this particular class, someone was saying about Wesley that, well, Wesley didn't really outline the essentials. Wesley gets painted oftentimes as a kind of pluralistic Unitarian based on one line out of Catholic spirit that's taken wildly out of context. Uh, we think and let think. And so people read that and they say Wesley was simply open to everything that would come across the board. I don't know if, about you, but if you've been looking at these sermons of John Wesley, uh, no understanding of Wesley as a progressive Unitarian pluralist will actually survive the reading of his actual work. If you read Wesley, you will see he is a gospel preacher, an evangelical preacher, one who calls us to faith and obedience as we love God and neighbor. Well, that's it for this time. We'll see you again here on Wednesdays with Wesley. Have a great week. May God bless you.